0: You probably noticed that the opening hymn had a kind of Gilbert and Sullivan quality to it, and that's because at least one of the writers was Arthur Seymour Sullivan. Uh, the best line in the whole one, that priest I began my ministry with loved, was the end of the first verse, led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. So Clint would always say, do do you think the people of Israel's feet got just a little wet going across? Nope! Unmoistened foot! Welcome to all of you, those who are visiting, passing through, seeking... At St. Luke's, you're welcome wherever you find yourself on your spiritual pilgrimage. We're glad you're here. And to all of you who come through the year and are faithful, thank you very much for participating in these great liturgies. The Episcopal Church, the Worldwide Anglican Communion, believes that the law of prayer, what we pray, we believe, And it is our worship, our liturgy, that uh, informs our self-understanding and preceded all of the theological ruminations and, in fact, the writing of the biblical text. This is always an occasion for me to remind us that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. And so the biblical witness flows from our pastoral experience, from our worship life, and from the lived experience of human beings. So always this time of year I want to talk about the shape of the Easter liturgy, because the great 50 days informs the whole of how we understand our common life as a liturgical church. Easter, the celebration of Easter, was the first post in the Christian calendar. And so out of that, we now radiate all of the other seasons and our self-understanding about what it is we do in our common worship, what we read from the biblical witness. And there are four things in the Easter liturgy that continue through the year but have a special intensity during the great 50 days. Remember, Easter is 50 days long. It ends on Pentecost, just like Christmas is 12 days long, although in our culture we celebrate a day and then it's over. So Easter, oh well, that's Easter for another year, or oh well, that's Christmas for another year. I I told you my grandfather on Christmas when my grandmother would put, you know, the presents were all unwrapped. And she says, well, there goes Christmas for another year. My grandfather would say, don't throw any of that wrapping in the fireplace. Somebody might throw some money in there that was in one of those envelopes. (laughs) Right? So we wanted to make sure that the priorities were all lined up about how to (laughs) celebrate (laughs) Christmas. So here's the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy, the service of light, symbolized by the presence of the paschal candle in the sanctuary, a symbol of the uh, light that leads the people of Israel, the pillar of fire in the wilderness, the light that shows us the way as the Christian community. And through our lived experience and reflection in our prayer, we came to see that this light has a twofold purpose. It is external, so it shows us the way and lights the dark. But it is an internal process so that the illuminative processes of God are at work in the hearts of all faithful people. The light of Christ is within you shining on your dark places, shining on those places where you are achieving the highest and best of your humanity and providing the clarity of purpose and the self-understanding that you need in order to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. So we celebrate the light of Christ. Father Thomas Keating, in his wonderful book, The Mystery of Christ, The Liturgy as Spiritual Experience, talks about this time of year, this fourfold shape, as presenting to us three great theological ideas. God's light, God's life, and God's love. And so we've talked about the God's light part. And the second part of the shape of the Easter liturgy is about the rehearsal of salvation history in our sacred literature. The reading from the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures about God's saving acts in the world. And people who began to read and listen to this sacred literature, found something out. They said, this is the literature of the community. It informs the history of salvation, our understanding of the continuity of God's purposes, how in human history God has always been present, how in human history God continues to be present in the, in the past, in the present, and in the future. And we've come to another realization As we reflect on these biblical texts, and that is that what they're talking about here is not just the history of the people that we're reading about, but we identify with them ourselves and with our own stories. And we come through our prayer and meditation and personal experience to understand that this history of salvation connects to our own history of salvation, and we understand something about the fact that our own personal history is part of the history of salvation. So you count in big and small ways for for God's purposes in the cosmos. You're important. And God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness is the fuel that allows you now to begin to own that and to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace in the world. This week I was watching YouTube. You have to be careful (laughs) watching YouTube. But I was listening to a lecture by Bishop N.T. Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham until a couple of years ago in England. And in the course of his lecture, he was describing, as an aside, a public school tutor in England in one of the posh public schools. There they still teach, you know, the Bible and the Bible's content. So he said to one of the young men, one of his Ts, he said, uh, what do you know about Lot's wife? And he said, she was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. (laughs) Would you think you'd made some progress on this or no? Hard to tell. Let me just say something about a couple of the readings The reading from 1 Corinthians is the earliest uh, uh, account in the Bible in the New Testament of the resurrection. Paul's writings predate the Gospels. They're earlier than the Gospels. So what Paul is saying in today's reading is that he has received this and he is handing it over to the Corinthian congregation. Not handing it down. He's handing it over. Do you understand the difference about the stewardship of the great tradition? You and I are the custodians of the great tradition. And the history of the resurrection animates and predates, obviously, the writing of the Holy Scriptures. And Paul is describing this. In John's Gospel today, we have what the Eastern Orthodox refer to as the apostle to the apostles. Mary Magdalene. Why does he insist on pronouncing this Magdalene? Because. (laughs) Actually, when I was in seminary, uh, Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, gave a talk. Uh, He was a close friend of the rector of the parish that I came from in San Mateo. And he was speaking uh, in the the lecture that he was giving. And he referred to Mary Magdalene. I said, I'm going to pronounce it that way from now on. (laughs) Come what may. I mean, what's... who? What Anglican clergyman does not have at least a few affectations? So it's Magdalene. How come she got to be the apostle of the apostles and we had no women as bishops or priests for a long time? I don't know how that got lost in translation, but be that as it may, we have to remind ourselves that she was the first eyewitness to the resurrection. It is the women who brought the news of the resurrection to the apostles. The third piece in this shape of the liturgy is baptism. And we just renewed our baptismal vows that provided us the opportunity to reflect on a template that we can use to determine how faithful we are living. To remind ourselves that baptism is the entry, is the path that we begin to follow the Savior on the way, and that it reminds us that through baptism, we receive the infused virtues of faith, hope, and love, and that we receive the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. And so baptism provides us the energy to be able to be God's people in the world. And the fourth part of the shape of the liturgy is the ongoing means to nurture and strengthen that, the Holy Eucharist, where week to week we receive that spiritual food and drink that gives us the strength, the stamina, the internal self-regulation to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of each of us on a regular basis. So it is in the Eucharist that you and I meet the presence of the risen Christ. You've heard me say over and over again when I was a young priest and thought that everybody had to be uh, an apt theologian, that when people came out the door and said, I don't know whether or not the bread and the wine become Jesus' body and blood, I don't understand, All of that conversation about it, and I'm not sure that I've. All I know is this when I come to communion, I feel better. You know, sort of like Steve Martin, when somebody asks him, Steve, how can you be so funny? He said, it's easy. Before I go out on stage, I put a piece of baloney in each shoe, and then I put my shoes on and go out, and I feel funny. <laughs> so I used to stand up and, oh, well, no, you need to understand all this, and you need to know how how all this worked. Now, whenever anybody says that to me, I am so happy I can hardly speak because if you feel better, you'll be better in the world as a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love. Episcopalians have a particular understanding of the nature and practice of Christianity in the world and it doesn't take a Philadelphia lawyer to figure out that in 2012, Christianity is not uh, one of the more popular things for a great many people or it is being advanced as a particular species of religion that has a very definite shape and outline and if you don't conform to it, you're not in. About three or four years ago, an Episcopalian by the name of Diana Butler Bass wrote a book called Christianity for the Rest of Us And it's a study of mainline religion in the United States. And the Episcopal Church certainly has been counted uh, as a mainline religion. So when she was asked about why she wrote the book, she said, During the time that I have been tracking mainline churches, evangelical voices have grown louder and more insistent that they and they alone are the true Christians, the ones with the true doctrine, true morals, and true politics. When people asked me what I was writing about, I typically responded, the other Christians, the ones you don't hear about in the media, the quiet ones. So what do these quiet ones do, and what in her findings visiting these communities did she find that stood out aspects of behavior and character in their common life together? Openness, generosity, intellectual integrity, emotional integrity, beauty, and justice. Now, if you and I, through the shape of the liturgy, can be in some way urged in that direction, uh, it would be a great thing. When I became an Episcopalian, the liturgy had an enormous impress on me as a young man. It had an absolutely transformative effect. And when I was thinking about what the nature of the effect was, to write this sermon, I was also thinking about the present circumstances in which we find ourselves uh, in this culture. You know, the largest percentage of people when they receive questionnaires to talk about their religious persuasion, you know, the largest box that you check that's growing, the largest number are the nuns. None. Five. None. But you also have people that check the box that say I'm spiritual but not religious. And what we discover is that even though people are more at home with saying none principally because there is absolutely no social opprobrium that attaches to that in 2012. None. So you can say that at the same time, there is present in this culture an enormous spiritual yearning. And how we describe that and what it might feel like, I believe, connects to Christian people and their experience of the liturgy, at least to- from time to time, of community life from time to time, of doing good works in the world, of making a difference in big and small ways in our close relationships and in our wider relationships in the workplace and friendships and people with whom we come in contact. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a book about three years ago called A Secular Age. It's a wonderful book. I guess it's not necessarily for popular consumption, although it was a a bestseller. And he says this. We all see in our lives and or the space wherein we live our lives as having a certain moral, spiritual shape. Somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, richness, that is, in that place, activity or condition. Life is fuller, richer, deeper, more worthwhile more admirable, more what it should be. This is perhaps a place of power. We often experience this as deeply moving, as inspiring. Perhaps this sense of fullness is something we just catch glimpses of from afar off. We have the powerful intuition of what fullness would be were we to be in that condition. For example, peace. Or wholeness, or able to act on that level of integrity, or generosity, or abandonment, or self forgetfulness. But sometimes there will be moments of experienced fullness of joy and fulfillment where we feel ourselves there. Have you ever felt yourself there? There are ways to do it. It can happen in the life of prayer, in the liturgy, in reaching out in love and concern for others, in being faithful to the baptismal covenant. This is Easter, and I haven't said a word to you about the resurrection. And on the same YouTube video, N.T. Wright was talking about the resurrection And he told the story of being in London in a traffic jam, going to a church meeting. And the cab driver looked in the rearview mirror and saw Tom Wright sitting in the back seat with his purple shirt on. And he said to him, are you a bishop, mate, or governor? And he said, well, yes, yeah, so Church, of, Church of it, yes, I'm a Church of England. But he said, well, I guess you all are having a little trouble in the C of E about, well, like women bishops and things like that. And he said, well, yes, we're having some issues about that and a, a long conversation about that. And he said, well, here's what I always say. If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God... All the rest is rock and roll, isn't it? (laughs) Amen. Amen.